All right, we are continuing in the book of Galatians today, uh, chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, wasn't last Sunday, Baptism Sunday, a lot of fun? Man, can we give it up for the four folks who put their, put their faith in Jesus and decided to take that next step through baptism? That was so fun. And again, I'm just so grateful for the team figuring that out in this hashtag portable church life, uh, doing it back there. Uh, it was really fun. I mentioned this one just to continue to bask in how fun that was, the joy of it all, but also to raise your attention to the fact that we actually have another round coming up. Uh, in a few weeks' time, on April 2nd. So if you've made a decision to follow Jesus and you have yet to be baptized, that's your next step. And we'd love to celebrate that with you. If you have any questions about that, please see me or someone on our team after the gathering. Uh, You can do that even today. We'd love to talk to you and, and get that set up for you. Well, have you ever wondered if Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, then what now of the law? You know, what what now of of the commandments? Uh, Should Christians follow those? Should they carry them out? And if so, to what extent? Or have you ever wondered if if Jesus died on the cross uh, for the forgiveness of sins, then why don't Christians just go ahead and do whatever they want to do anyhow, right? Because if if it's all forgiven, then what's, what's it matter? In fact, that's a question that comes up often in our Alpha course. It's like if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, isn't it as if Christians have a get-out-of-jail-free card, and aren't they going to use and abuse that? Uh, the, the text that we're looking at today addresses both of these very important questions. And we come now to the middle of Paul's letter to the Galatians, the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, where it seems to me Paul is getting into the meat of his letter. Okay? So what, what we've seen this far through the book of Galatians is the occasion for the writing of this letter was false teachers had traveled in the wake of Paul planting churches throughout the region. The region of Galatia is in modern-day Turkey, uh, southwest part area there next to the, the Mediterranean Sea. Paul had gone through that region, sharing the gospel, starting new churches, and in his wake, after he left, false teachers were coming in and saying, hey, Galatian churches— Sure, you have to believe Paul's gospel, that you have to put your faith in Jesus and and receive what he did on the cross for you by faith alone. But you must also, they added, accept and adopt Jewish customs and traditions. In particular, you must be circumcised. And then and only then will you be made right before God. Will you be brought back into his family and brought into the Christian church with its Jewish heritage as we understand it to be? And Paul just comes out the gates, if you were here that first week, just saying, 
Galatians, don't you dare believe those things. Because if you take anything and add it to the gospel, you lose the gospel entirely. This gospel, this good news of Jesus having done everything for you and me on the cross, received by faith, if you add anything to that, you lose the gospel in its entirety. And then the second half of chapter one, Paul then kind of defends his credibility. These false teachers were essentially saying, oh, you believe Paul's gospel? Well, he doesn't have any credibility. He's not one of the main guys who's following Jesus. Paul defends that and says, look, this is not a gospel that's of me. God gave it to me out of special revelation. And I'm, I wouldn't be about this if not for that. And if you have trouble believing that, Galatians, just remember my story. And if you remember, if you were here on that uh, week that we covered that, you know that Paul's story is quite convincing because Paul's story was one of being the chief persecutor of the Christian church, only for him to then come to the place where he became essentially the greatest missionary of the church. And Paul is saying, look, if you understand that story about me, then you know that this is not just a, a gospel I've made up for my own benefit and and. And interest. I'm actually sharing what God's given me. Okay, so that's Galatians, the end of chapter one, and then Galatians, early part of chapter two, he says, and then after years of studying this, looking into the scriptures, trying to affirm this for myself, this gospel that God gave me, I went finally to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders there, Peter, James, John, and we all talked about it, and we all realized that there was great alignment, great agreement. This gospel that we, we receive forgiveness of sins through what Jesus has done by faith alone is the gospel. You can't add anything to it. They agree. I agree. It's from God. We're set, Galatians. Okay, that's the backdrop. Now he gets into what I like to think of as the meat of his, layer, uh, of his letter, where he's laying out all the rationale and reasoning for why adding anything to the gospel just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work logically. It flies in the face of the gospel itself. In fact, Paul now says it flies in the face of the, what the law has always been about. And so this is important for us to understand today, whether you're looking into the Christian faith or whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a while. Because we need to wrestle with where do the gospel and the law meet are Christians to carry out the law? And if so, to what extent? That's, that matters. And if they've been forgiven, what about this, this idea of, well, what does it matter anyhow? Can we just, can Christians just go ahead and do their own? We need to wrestle with things, these things because they're important to understand. They are, and they're important to understand their implications on our lives as, as we carry it out, as we live it out. So that's the plan today we're going to get into. Let me, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your spirit to help us understand it. Uh, even today as we get into what might feel like a little more technical, meaty, theological discussion of the scriptures, I pray that you would open it up to our hearts. You help us understand it and then all the more uh, live it out. And for those who aren't followers of yours, I pray that it would be clear to them so they could see what, what it is you have for them. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so where do the gospel and the law meet. Paul is emphatic in our first verse we're looking at today, verse 15, that the law does not and cannot justify us. The law, uh, the commandments, living a good life according to the, these things, cannot, does not justify us is the word he uses. Here, here's how he puts it. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is perhaps the clearest articulation of the doctrine of justification by faith in the scriptures. Now, the doctrine of justification, which we'll unpack here in a moment, is uh, found throughout the scriptures. But here's perhaps the clearest, most concise articulation of it. And the doctrine of justification is kind of a big deal in Christianity. In fact, Martin Luther, 16th century famous reformer, said the, of the doctrine of justification, it is the chief, actually he even said chiefest principle of Christianity. I didn't realize chiefest was a word. Autocorrect didn't think so either, but we'll go with what he said. The chiefest, the most principle of all articles is the doctrine of justification in Christianity. In fact, he went on to say that if, if, if you lose any part of the doctrine of justification, all of Christianity unravels. Okay, so what, is it, what does it mean to be justified? We, we talked, about th- talked about this briefly last week, but the ancient Greek word for justification is a legal term borrowed from the courts of law. And to justify something is the exact opposite to con- than to condemn something. Okay, so to condemn something is to declare somebody uh, guilty. To justify is to declare them not guilty and uh, uh, declare them innocent and righteous. So, in a biblical understanding of justification, it is an act of God's free grace where he pardons the sinner and makes the sinner right before him, taking, taking the just punishment away from them. And what's more, gives to that person, imparts to that person righteousness sees that person as righteous in their sight. That's what justification is, a big deal. It's being brought, in its essence, into right relationship with God. And what Paul is saying here is the law cannot, does not do that. He's just really emphatic here. And this is something the Bible says that we all know deep down. We don't have to be religious. We don't have to have grown up reading the Bible to understand these things deep down. What do I mean? Well, we all understand deep down, the scriptures say, that there's this moral law, there's this code, there's this standard that we are to live by. The Bible says it's God-centered. It's what, what he's made us to be about, how to live. It's, it's, it's his law. I was reading a, a really fascinating article back in college that uh, really caught my attention related to this that I thought was really compelling. It was an article, uh, not of, of a religious publication or a Christian publication. It was a secular publication. It was an article making the case that when you look across the large swath of religions and their moral codes, you find that on the whole, they have a lot, in fact, just about all similarities between them. Like, you can, you can find varying degrees. You can take a fine-tooth comb, and you can go, okay, this, this religion's moral code is, is a little bit different from this one and this way. And this. You, you can get into all that, but really across the whole, what you find is there are, they're all about the same. And the writer of this article went on to say, for the sake of simplicity, you could just, you could just about say, you could summarize all of them with what the Bible calls the Ten Commandments. The Bible teaches that in the same way that there are natural laws in operation, there are also spiritual laws in operation. And we don't have to be religious to understand these things. For instance, when we do something wrong and we feel guilty about it, and we feel guilty about it even though what we did wrong had no one around us to see it, right? There's nobody around for us to feel guilty. Like, there's no moral police looking over our shoulder, yet still somehow we feel guilty about it. 
The Bible teaches that that's just innate in us. There's a, there's a moral code, there's a standard, there's a law that God's given us that we're, we're called to live by. At the same time, the Bible teaches that we also intuitively know that we don't live up to it. And not by just a little bit, by a lot of bit, as I like to say with my kids. By, by a large margin. I was reading when I was younger uh, a text that has, has meant a lot to me in this regard um, over the years. Uh, Romans chapter 7. Paul was writing to other churches in the city of Rome later than this, this letter to the Galatians. And he basically summarized it this way. He, he got really vulnerable in his writing. He said, guys, just so you understand, the things that I know I ought to do, the things that I know God calls me to do and live by, those things I don't really do. And the things I know I ought to do, I don't really do those things. And Paul was just laying out a framework for human nature. Something that I don't need the Bible to tell me about. Just there's so much about our human nature where we just, we understand there's a mark. We understand there's good, there's, there's right. And, and yet we also understand that we just, we just miss it. And not by just a little bit, but by a lot. And what the Bible teaches is that sin, okay, so that living, not hitting the mark, not following God's ways, his laws, his commandment, his standard, results in us being separated from him. And the classic illustration from this, I imagine many of you have seen this. If you've grown up in the church, you definitely have. Is this, it's this idea of now because of our sin, there's a chasm between us and God. God created us to be in relationship with him, but because of our sin, there's this chasm. We're on one side, and, and, and God, who is perfectly holy, just, right, loving, selfless, all the rest of it, is on the other end. And there's this chasm in between us that separates us because of our, our sin, and what Paul is saying here is there's no amount of good works or following the law that will get us an iota closer because that chasm essentially is infinite. That's how far we miss the mark. Paul is saying there's this law that we all understand, and that law cannot, will not justify us because that's just how broken we are. That's, that's the first thought he's making here. The second one is this. If the, the law doesn't and cannot justify us, what it does do is it points us to our need for Jesus. Okay, the law points us to our need for Jesus. Let's read that same verse, but see the other point of emphasis. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. The, the law is not a bad thing. Okay, the law is actually a wonderful thing. It's it's. God's standard for us. It shows us what, how to live good and, and rightly. It's just that the law does not save us. In fact, what the law really does in showing us the good life that God calls us to do and, 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 and helping us, our hearts understand that we're not doing is ultimately God shows us for our need for outside help. And that outside help is, of course, in Christ. In just a few verses here, if you look from just midway through Galatians 2 to midway through Galatians 3, you'll find that Paul says we have to have faith or belief in Jesus a whopping nine times. Just rapid fire. We have to have faith in Jesus, faith in Christ. And then in verse 19, he puts it this way. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. What does that mean, to, lie, to, to die to the law? Well, Paul used to be what's known as a Pharisee. Okay, a religious leader of a sect that took the commandments of God hyper-seriously. 
We're talking to the degree of adding their own laws on top of God's laws in order to try to ensure that they'll at least keep God's law. Is that making sense? Like that's, that's the degree of like meticulousness that they were just applying to the law and trying to live out. That was Paul trying to follow it to every letter of the, of, of, the, of the scriptures and just saying, okay, I'm going to do that. And yet what he said is I came to realize in pursuing that very thing that I could not do it. That the law showed me I was, I was dead to it, and I needed, outside, I needed outside help. It's in that sense, that sense of guilt of not being able to live up to God's law that had killed Paul. But what we need instead, the law shows us, is what verse 16 and many other verses around it say, is faith in Christ. Now, what's fascinating about this statement in the original language that doesn't translate well into our English because we just don't talk this way, is it doesn't actually say faith in Christ here. The preposition is actually faith into Christ. But when, when do we say that in English, right? Faith into something, okay? But that's what it's saying. It's saying we are, we need, we are justified by faith into Christ, which means faith in Christ is not just an intellectual assent. It's not just saying, oh yeah, that makes sense. It's, into, it's, a, it's a personal commitment to receive that which the law shows us we can't do, and that is what he has accomplished for us on the cross, bringing us into a personal relationship and what he has done. We need outside help. Third thought, which follows, because we are justified in Christ who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. The law does not, cannot save us. It points us to our need for Jesus, and we see that Christ meets that need in fulfilling the law on our behalf. Look at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I, am, and I, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then look at chapter three, verse one. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. The law cannot, does not save us. It points us to our need for Jesus. And how he's accomplished that need was by being crucified. Allow me to have a little bit of fun with this logically. So what we've been saying up to this point is the law cannot, does not justify us. Does not bring us into right relationship with us. Good works, following it, right? But that's not the entire picture, actually. Because in a way, actually, the law does justify us. It's just not by our following the law. We cannot do it. But the gospel is, the good news is that Jesus came into this world to live that law perfectly on our behalf. Meaning, the gospel, the good news, is not a baby in the manger. The gospel, the good news, is not a great ethical teacher who gave wonderful sermons that we can look at today. And the gospel is not some incredible miracle worker who brought healing to the masses. The gospel is Christ crucified. And we, with him crucified, what does that mean? Jesus on the cross after having lived a life that you and I were called to live, but don't by a large margin, was then killed, crucified on her behalf. And our sins together with him. We have been crucified in that sense with him when we receive what he has done for us, when we are justified because of what he has done. Uh, there's a very famous, in fact, probably the, the, the most famous sermon that Jesus ever taught was, was called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, 
Jesus' scripture text was essentially the Ten Commandments. Now, he looked at some other laws, but essentially it was the Ten Commandments. And, it, and at one point, he was, as he was going through it, he said, You have heard that it is written, Thou shalt not commit murder. But I tell you, Jesus went on, if you even harbor hate in your heart towards your brother, you're already guilty of breaking that commandment. Why? Because it doesn't just take the egregious literal act of murdering somebody to start along the path of all the hurt and destruction that happens when we begin to harbor hate in our hearts towards others. Is that making sense? Jesus was saying not only did that law show you not to kill somebody, it also showed you the path along the way where sin already, you're already missing the mark along the way. And then to take it a little bit further, Jesus said, you have heard it, it, that it's written, thou shalt not commit adultery. He said, but I tell you, if you even look lustfully at somebody, you're breaking that commandment in your heart. Because same thing applies there. You don't have to just commit the act of literal adultery to be already starting along your way to create destruction, harm, pain to yourself and others through lust. And, and so in doing this, Jesus was kind of expanding what the law meant or at least the spirit of the law, helping us understand why God gave us this law and its implications at the heart and spirit level. It is impossible to read the Sermon on the Mount today and not understand, at least at the heart level, it seems to me, two things that we've said today. One, that God's moral standard is incredibly good, loving, great, and what the world needs today. Read the Sermon on the Mount, and that'll, that'll hit you. But the other thing it shows you is how far we miss that mark. So Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, upheld the law. He said, hey, I'm not just telling you to not commit adultery. I'm telling you to not even lust after someone. I'm not just telling you not to commit murder. I'm telling you not even to harbor hate towards others. So, okay, hold on. So where's justification from then? I mean, Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, says, you know what, let me, let me give you another commandment in the Scriptures. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Where is justification? If the law is upheld, Jesus, the Son of God, even upheld it, where, where, do, we, where do we get it if we know we can't uphold it ourselves? Well, that's, that's the gospel. In that same sermon, here's how Jesus put it. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this comes back to what we were saying. The gospel is Christ crucified that he upheld the law, the moral standard that God calls you and me to. will hold us accountable to, but when we put our faith in Jesus, we are justified. Meaning, we are proclaimed innocent, not guilty. Because of our own works? No, because of the works of Christ. And that is received by faith into Jesus. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus, this is what it means to be a Christian to receive him by faith, to say essentially in your heart, you can even pray this if you want, Father, I recognize that I missed the mark. I recognize that you have, you call me to live a life that I just, I just don't live, and I just ask for forgiveness. And I ask to receive what Christ accomplished for me on the cross, him crucified. And I commit this day to try to follow you as best I can. That's what it means to be a Christian. Okay. What of the law? And for those of you who are followers of Jesus, this is where I encourage you to especially lean in, because what does this matter for us today? What are the implications? Uh, Paul addresses an objection. He kind of raises it himself in order to deal with it. 
In verse 17, he says, But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what is destroyed, then I really would be a lawmaker. Okay, so the ancient Greek here, just so we're all on the same page, is actually, Bible scholars tell us, quite tricky to translate and understand. But there's a consensus among biblical scholars of what Paul is saying here, and he's raising an objection to the tune of, if we're justified through faith in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, then doesn't that fatally weaken the moral obligation of Christians? right? Doesn't that mean that Christians can then just go off and do whatever they want to do because they'll be forgiven anyways? Or, to use more colloquial language, as it'll often be framed in, say, an alpha course, if Christians are forgiven, isn't that a get-out-of-jail-free card that they'll just abuse? And Paul's answer to his own objection that he's raising are the words, absolutely not. Classic Paul, by the way. No, <laughs> moving on. No, we're going to get into it. But I just love, before we move on to more of the, the rationale behind it, it's worth noting that those two words need to be considered. He just says, if you're thinking this way, your intuition is just off. You just absolutely not. You're, you're, you're missing something. Are we tracking? Before he even gets into the rationale of like saying well, why that's, that doesn't make any sense, he's like, if you're just thinking that way, do you, just, you realize that you're just missing things as according to everything we've been saying up into this point in the letter. He's saying that, we need, that if we're thinking that way, we're, we're missing the point. And then look, look down at verse 21. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God. Here's how the scriptures talk about this, including Paul here, in, in a way, although it's more inferred. He's saying if Christians operate with this idea that, hey, I'm forgiven by Jesus, by what he did on the cross, so therefore I'm going to go ahead and do it because I know I'll get forgiveness about it. He, the scriptures, question if we actually believe in the first place. He's questioning if we actually have believed. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this in his seminal work, The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's worth noting, was a Christian German pastor uh, during uh, World War II in, in Nazi Germany, and he had every opportunity to flee Germany uh, leading into the conflict, and yet stayed. And I only point that out because it's worth noting that what he says and wrote about has a little bit more weight to it because he, he lived, in fact, died, these things we're getting ready to talk about. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about how there's a difference between cheap grace and costly grace. Have you heard this before? It's a very helpful framework. I think it's exactly what Paul is saying here when he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. Cheap grace looks at the cross and says, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I see that. I believe that, but doesn't really have a changed life. Hasn't really, say, died to self, died to the law, and living new life in Christ, to use words of our our text. Chief Grace looks at the cross and says, that's nice, but doesn't really translate into a changed life. Maybe that life will make an appearance here or there, or throw, throw a, to, to a religious ceremony, or throw up a prayer here or there. You get the idea, but not really a changed life. Is this making sense? That's Chief Grace, as Bonhoeffer would talk about it. Costly Grace, he says, looks at the cross and says, oh my goodness, if the cross means the Son of God came into this world to die be crucified, to pay the payment of my sin on the cross on my behalf, how can it not change my life from the inside out through and through? 
And not just in a kind of sort of way, but in an all-encompassing way where I am dead to my old self and now living a new life in Christ. Cheap grace and costly grace. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, if a Christian is living a life where they've believed in Jesus, they've decided that, they, that that's true, but they're not living it out. Or worse, they're saying, you know what, I can go ahead and just do this because God will forgive me. He's questioning if they are actually, they've ever believed in the first place. And on the flip side of that, he's saying Christians ought to be the people marked most of all as increasingly dying to themselves and becoming more like Jesus. Meaning dying to their own interests and living for themselves and living increasingly for the sake and love and care and service of others. To give you some examples, just to kind of start to think about this and kind of uh, work it through how it might apply to each of our lives, because the possibilities of these are, are of course, endless, right? As you start to try to apply this, what it means for maybe you personally as not setting aside the grace of God, that's between you and the Lord as you think about it, but just to kind of give some thoughts and to kind of uh, hang hang some ideas on. Um, As I was thinking about this for myself this week, I realized I've been... I've been perhaps struggling with resting well in terms of Sabbath. I've been, I've been doing a great job of resting and getting good Sabbath rest, which is, by the way, one of the commandments. It's one of the commandments. And it's interesting. It's one of the commandments Jesus affirmed, but he affirmed in a different way. So with like murder, he said, I'll tell you the truth, don't even harbor hate. So he kind of like took it another layer. With adultery, he said, don't even lust. So he took it a layer further. With, with Sabbath, he said, hey, just so you know, he said, Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. So he's like, you actually have freedom when it comes to Sabbath. It's not like this hard set, you know, if you don't follow it to the T, then it's not going to go well for you. He's like, you have freedom. But I, what I'm sharing with you is I'm recognizing I haven't been doing a great job with that. And how I've realized that is by the great, gi- great gift that the uh, Board of Elders have taken an initiative for, for me and City with sabbatical coming up. Uh, you guys ever, like, get ready for, like, a vacation? You have planned further out, and you have the double-edged sword of, like, oh, wow, it's on the horizon, and on the other side of it, it's like, oh, man, now I just need to get there. You know what I'm saying? It's like you, you have the, you know it's there, and now you have to, like, kind of get the energy to get there. I realize I, it's been showing me uh, that I haven't been resting all that well. Now, to give you some context, when we first started Current, we had uh, a number of people say, hey, if you're starting a church, just like starting a lot of en- endeavors, uh, it's going to be startup life for you. So make sure, like, you, you understand there's going to be some realities where you're going to have to work extra hard and rest is going to be a little bit harder to come by, but try to establish good rhythms of rest. And as soon as there's more margin, then really establish good rhythms of rest for the long haul. And I realized I probably haven't been doing a great job at that. Now, as I say that to you, in our Silicon Valley culture, I imagine it might sound a little bit like a humble brag. Because here we are in an area where it's all about working and, hey, don't, you know, rest. Oh, you don't quite rest yet. Oh, that's cool. I'm not saying that. Please, I, like, I'm to the degree of, like, man, if I don't rest well, I don't, I don't have as much energy or emotional stores for Cindy and the kids. And that's not right. And cheap grace, cheap grace can go okay, I understand Jesus died on the cross, took care of every provision I need. Cheap Grace can go, I understand he's the head of church, he's building his church, and he's, he's at work, and he doesn't need me a part of it, but you know what? I'm going to go ahead and just help him out anyways. I'm just going to work, because I, I, just, I just need to go ahead and help him a little bit. 
Whereas costly grace goes, you know what? He's, a, he's the head of his church. He's the, one who's gonna, he's the one who's working when I'm not working. And even when it hurts a little bit, I need to trust and lean into that and actually take some rest. Are you, are you tracking here? Okay, that might be a, a little bit more of a meta thought. It's just something that hit me personally I thought I'd share. Let's take another example. Cheap grace, costly grace. Let's say you might be, having, you might be struggling to forgive somebody. There's somebody in your life right now, it's just really hard to forgive them. Cheap grace goes, I see that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins, but this person is just making me too angry. This person just flat out doesn't deserve forgiveness. So I, mm, nope. Costly grace goes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and while it's really painful, the hurt that's been inflicted here, and I'm not just going to be willy-nilly about it, I'm going to seek God to try to help me forgive them because perhaps they don't deserve it. But all the more, I didn't deserve Christ's love for me. And so, Father, would you help me forgive them? Are you seeing the difference here? Cheap grace goes, you know what? It's nice, this concept of forgiveness. I receive it for what it does for me, justification and all that, but I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to bother to think about forgiving. Costly grace goes, Jesus forgave me to my depths infinitely more than the one or two slights of hurts that I'm holding against that person and I'm not going to, I'm going to choose not to forgive them over. Cheap grace, costly grace, and what Paul is calling us to do as his followers is to not set aside the grace of Christ. It's incredible what God has done for you and me when we put our faith in him. He justifies us. He looks at you and me and does not say guilty, but he looks at Christ and what he did and says, that's where I called guilty. That's where I condemned and declares us innocent and actually imparts Christ's righteousness for us. And what that ought to do is not go, well, get out of jail free card. Because if we do that, we miss the whole thing. We don't understand it. It hasn't sunk in. Maybe we haven't believed it to begin with. If anything, Paul is saying we ought to be people marked as, as ones who are dying to ourselves and living for the sake of God and others all the more because of who he's done and what he has done for us. We're living out of a response to his love. So where's the law now? The law is not something that justifies you or me. Christ did that. He fulfilled that. Even as he didn't abolish it, he fulfilled it on your behalf when you've put your faith in him. There are good chunks of the law, just real quickly here, that are no longer in effect. So the ceremonial laws in the scriptures, Jesus made those obsolete. The priestly laws, the sacrificial laws, like those, are just, they don't, those don't make any more sense. They're just not in effect. But the laws that Jesus did affirm, namely the moral laws, are still in effect even as they're not what saves us. So we just strive our best because of what Christ has done and who he calls us to be to try to live without setting aside the grace to become the people God calls us to loving and serving others around us. I love that today we're celebrating communion. What a great day to celebrate communion as we remember Christ crucified for you and me. His body broken, his blood shed. What I'd encourage you to do as we just kind of move into that time together is just to think about, maybe meditate on and pray about if you're a follower of Jesus, where might you be setting aside the grace of Christ. Where, to use Bonhoeffer language, where, where might be you living with cheap grace? And, and where could the Lord meet you there because, precisely because of his grace? 
Not so that you're justified or made right more with God. That's not what it's about. That, we're free from that. We've died to the law. But because of who God is and what he's called us to, and out of a loving response of him giving us everything in his son, how do we, how do we try to reorient our lives, beginning with our hearts, around who he is and for the grace he has given us? Let's pray. Father, as we come now to communion, to remember your body broken, your blood shed for us, we, we do it with hearts filled with awe. That you were crucified, and we in our sins with you, crucified on the cross. Not because of anything we've done or bring to the table, because there's nothing we do. We just receive this by faith. And even that faith is not all that great. And even the way we live it out, we constantly are stumbling and need your forgiveness all the more. And yet you, you lavish it on us. So we thank you. And Father, would you help us as followers of yours and as, as, as your church to not set aside the grace of God in Christ and to offer it uh, to, to one another and to, to the world around us because, Lord, there are so many ways where we miss the mark and we feel the effects of our sin, not least of which being separated from you. And so we, we ask that you would, you would use us to advance your gospel. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.